You know, there's really not a better person that I know in this world. And I know, I've known a few persons in this world. There's not a better person in this world than Chiv to read that passage. Chiv is humble. To the point at times I, I almost have to drag him. Because he just won't let you take care of him. He won't let you do anything for him. He wants to do something for you. He wants to put you before him in all ways and in every way. Other than when he's playing golf. <laughs> and then it has become his goal in life, although he's only been playing golf a very short time, to humble all those around him. With his completely unorthodox, loosey-goosey, coordinated style, driving the ball past people who've been playing for years and years and years. Most of the time. Gary and I, me more than Gary probably, feel so humble. Gary's going to tell you he taught him, but trust me, he didn't. He's helped him or gotten his way a little, however you want to look at that. The reality is he just comes out of him as he just enjoys the sport, perfectly relaxed and releasing every nerve from his body. He could care less where the ball goes, and it doesn't always go where he wants it, but a lot of time it does, and he enjoys those moments so much. Humility is a great, great gift, a gift that Americans struggle with. We're not exactly a very humble people. And if you look at Texans, okay, we're worse, right? I mean, we can't help it that we know we're better than everybody else, right? We can't help it that we know we live in the best day. We can't help it that we know it's the wonder everybody hasn't moved down here. It's just the way we kind of think and act. And even if we don't come right out and blurt it out, and hopefully we don't, it kind of comforts us all the time just knowing that we're here, right? I feel that way about being Methodist, too. I might as well go ahead and lay it all out on the line. You know, just think I could be somewhere else in some other kind of church uh, worshiping God. And I guess that could be all right. But why would I want to be there when I could be here, right? Humility. This passage of Scripture, it is the highest thought that is expressed in Pauline writings in the scriptures. It is a difficult thought that is expressed in this passage of scripture. <coughs> Scholars still struggle with it and struggle around it, trying to figure out exactly what it means and exactly how it applies to us today. Some people believe it is a hymn, one of the earliest hymns of the church. And some people really don't believe it was a hymn. They believe it was written by Paul. Some people believe Paul just adopted it as his own as a hymn that he liked and added a little bit to it. There are all kinds of people who think all kinds of things, and perhaps some of them might even be right. But for most purposes, traditionally, we believe Paul wrote it. Traditionally, we believe that the letter is from Paul, and it certainly does fit with the rest of the context of the letter in Philippians. So even though you might spend a whole lot of time studying this passage in Philippians, and you'd be in good company if you did, and even though you might be confused by some of the words and the way it's put together, even though it might not be exactly clear who's right if you got down to all the technicalities of the words, when you put it in English and you just read it, in the context of the letter, it's really not all that difficult. Let's back up to Ephesians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ... Paul is writing this to the church of Philippi. If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, 
United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. When you put it right down and boil it down to its key ingredients, it's just live like Jesus. What would Jesus do as they wore those bracelets over and over again for years and years and some people still are wearing them? What would Jesus do? How would Jesus act? What would Jesus say? Our ability to express those kind of thoughts in our daily lives with the people we encounter tells a lot about us. You know, it's pretty easy to go off to youth camp and be holy, right? Did you have a holy time last week? Yeah, he did. Well, I don't know about the rest of you. He's kind of... Okay, okay. You're awake now? Come on, come on. School hasn't started yet. You're okay for another week. Ten days, two weeks. But when you get away from the places that we act like church people, when we get into the everyday occurrences of life at home with our brothers and sisters, at home with our parents, on the block with our neighbors, at work, the people we see every day, in dealings with people when we're out in the community purchasing things or doing things, in all of those kinds of places, it's not quite as easy, is it? It's so easy to be good in church. Even I can be good in church. I'm wearing my stole today to remind me again of how many hands that it takes to keep me in line. Yes, I know these were hands of the... I told you once before, these are the handprints of the kids in Frisco when I left there. They made the stole for me and someone did it and had the children put their handprints on it to remind me of me touching their lives. But actually for me, it's a reverse kind of thing. It reminds me of how they have touched my lives. And not only them, but it reminds me of how many hands it took to get me to where I am today. And trust me, if my mama was here, she could stand up and testify. It took a lot of raising to raise this kid. And my wife could also testify, and she would love the opportunity, but we're not going to go there. (laughs) But it's good to know who has influenced you and how you got to where you are. Because when we begin to understand that, we get a little bit of distance between us and claiming our American slash Texan heritage of we are self-made people. We love that phrase. I got where I am by hard work, not because my mama and my daddy were rich. Yeah, 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 right. I got where I am because I studied hard in college and I majored in a real major, not just some kind of, you know what, Right, right, right. We love to think about how important we are, don't we? And we love it when we accomplish something because after all, I did it. And it feels great. And that's okay. To a point. To the point that you don't forget who you really are. Every one of us Every one of us are a product of so much that has gone into our lives that to claim that we are responsible for whatever we have accomplished because of us, mainly, is ridiculous. I'm one of three. My brother was the first one. He's about to turn 60, what did we say, Sally? 67. Can't believe my brother's 67 years old. Wow, he's going to be an old man. When my brother went to school, it was hard for him. 
Every grade in school was hard for him. He could make decent grades if he really struggled at it and he worked at it. And he did most of the time, especially after that time when he got grounded for six weeks in high school as a junior because he made a grade he shouldn't have made. And uh, boy, did I learn from that lesson. Don't be stupid, Doug. You know, because sitting at home and crossing off every day for six weeks is a long time. But when I came along, it was just the opposite. Same daddy, same mother, same household, same rules. But school was always easy to me. It was kind of ridiculously easy to me. Did I apply myself completely? Nope, it was too easy. I didn't need to. What would have happened if I had? Have no clue. Have no clue what might have changed had I stayed in a highly competitive environment when we moved to a smaller school where I didn't. And I could coast and be number one in class, no problem. And what did I do? Coasted, right? There's no reason that I should claim that as some kind of victory because I came that way. And my brother came in a little different way. Now, don't get anything wrong. He's no dummy. He also got, got out of seminary. He also is a pastor, now retired. He has his college degree as well. He worked at it. He got them. But it's not that way for everybody, is it? Sometimes people are in high school and it's way over their heads. Sometimes people are hard to fit into groups because of who they were born to be. Not every personality is the same, right? Not every human is the same. We're not wired the same way. Everybody doesn't think like we think, thank God. Everybody doesn't act like we act. And most of the time, or a lot of the time, that's another thank God. Sometimes we wish they would act like us, right? On our good days, our good moments, but not always. But here comes Jesus into this picture, who was the Son of God, was God, had all that comes with being God... And he chose to set that aside, not to claim it as if it was his right and privilege, but chose to set it aside for my benefit and for everyone else's. Now, that becomes really important when I think about my vision for the church. Verses like, he did not see equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. He emptied himself by... A Assuming the form of a slave. He humbled himself in verse 8. And became obedient to the point of death. Even to the death on the cross. So whenever I think about this passage in context of what Paul is saying. Had this attitude which was in Christ Jesus. I get a picture of my vision for the church. And it's always been this way. It's always been this way for every church. Although the particularities of it are expressed in different ways. Because you see, the way that one person is obedient is entirely has to do with who they are. And who they, what they have the opportunity to be. Not compared to somebody else. If you're a B student, hooray for you is one thing to say. But perhaps being a B student for you is outstanding because it required your every ounce of energy. But perhaps being a B student for you is terrible. Because you could have easily been an A plus student if you had applied yourself like some of those people did to make B's. 
So patting yourself on the back for making a good grade when you didn't apply yourself very much to it is really not that great a thing, right? And I tell you that all the time because you have to remember it if you're going to really mingle with the people of the world and be effective as a Christian. You have to remember that a lot of people are not like you. They didn't have the same opportunities you have. They 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 don't think like you think. They don't have the same family context as you had. They didn't grow up learning about the church in a great way, but sometimes even in bad ways. They were taken to churches where they heard a bad message that Jesus never included for them in their lives, yet they were damaged by it. All these things are going on all the time when you're talking to people. And you have to be thinking about who they are when you're talking to them. And what is the way to reach out to them? For Jesus, the way to reach out was to give all of his privileges, all of the perks, away. In order that he could become human like us. Because he knew that was the only way he could save us. Think about it. He gave away his sonship in a sense. All the royalty and the majesty of being residing in heaven to come down upon this earth. And to humble himself to be a servant of you and me. That's, that kind of thought blows my mind. Now I know most of you probably don't have any problem being a servant to the people you meet in life, right? We don't do very good with the image of slave, and I get that. But you know, when you're a slave and you've chosen to be a slave, it's a little different, isn't it? It's kind of like when you take your marriage vows. Men don't usually understand they're about to become a slave, but they're about to become a slave. (laughs) Women don't understand that they're going to become a slave, but trust me, it happened again in our house just this week. I asked Sally to get something for me, and she said, couldn't you just get up and get it for yourself? And I thought, what a novel idea. Why would I? (laughs) She was already up. I was down. I was reading. Uh, Okay, it is what it is, see? We love to be served, don't we? We love it. We love to be pampered, don't we? We love it. In fact, some people who join the church come to the church to be served, to have their kids taken care of and taught, to have their lives looked after if they need the church. So how do you know that, preacher? Because I've been doing this 35 years. You can't tell you how many people during those 35 years I've had calls about saying, well, we have bad news, so-and-so died, and we'd like for you to have his funeral. You know, he's a member of your church. I said, man, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I can't remember names very well. Then I go back to the office. I said, who knew? Sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so. And sometimes we go down through the whole office list and everybody says, well, I don't know. Are they on the rolls? Oh, they once were. 25 years ago, before they got taken off at charge conference, haven't seen them in at least 20 years I know in the church. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. You see, being like Christ is not just about getting your ticket to heaven, 
But it means following him. It means being his servant in the work of the kingdom of God. It means coming to church until you die. You don't retire from coming to church. You don't leave the church when your kids do. Because when you do that, if you do that, then the first message your kids understand is, oh, church was just for me, not for you. So since I don't have kids, I don't need to go to church until I get married and have kids. Hear that all the time in 35 years. Hear it all the time. What made you brought you back to church? Well, we had a child. And I smiled and I said, well, that does change things, doesn't it? And then myself, to myself, not to them, I'm praying, I hope it does change you too. You see, everyday conversation is about being humble. It's not about telling these people, well, we can't do your funeral because you haven't been to the church lately. That's not what it's about. It's about realizing that people need us to be humble toward them. We need to be humble toward one another. We need to learn to live together as a church so that when people come to visit us, they see a church that gets along well. And you say, well, we all get along like a great big family. I know you do. And that's great. And I see it all the time. And I love that. Youth group does the same thing. I'm sure that youth group, so far as I know, I've only been here a little over a year, they've never had a disagreement in their group. And every time they have thought something differently in love to one another, it was never a problem. Nobody ever really went home mad. Uh, they've never had a board meeting in this church that was really somebody got mad in or somebody said something unkind about somebody else out in the hall before the meeting. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> All these things happen when we are not following the example of Christ. And when these things happen, when we're not like-minded and we're not united in purpose, the church is a pretty weak institution. Now, when we think about this as we approach the table for Holy Communion, we become aware of what Christ has done for us. There's a little book written called I Am a Church Member by a guy named Tom Rainier. And he did some research in 2004 through 2010. In that research, he discovered that after studying some almost 1,000 churches, 9 out of 10 churches in America were declining or growing at a pace slower than that of their communities. They were losing ground right in their own backyards. And so he wrote this book saying, perhaps one of the reasons that people... Churches are declining is because perhaps people have lost the biblical understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And then he listed six things in that book that he said should be characteristic of a biblical church and the people in it. Let me just give you three of them that I particularly liked. One of the things he said it was uh, churches that were growing were and were biblical were a functioning church. And then he started quoting the passages in 1 Corinthians 10 through 13. Talking about everybody's a part of the body. You know, we need all the different parts. Everybody is working together, united together for a common cause. Functioning church means you're doing things for others, not coming to the church, simply looking for the church to do something for you. Now, sometimes we have to learn that because no example has been set for us. You hope that we taught your children so that when they get older as adults and they go to a church, that they don't come just with their hand out when they go, but they, they go with their hands in. 
ready to be a part of the family. Second thing he said about this was that being a church member biblically was to be unified. You unified the church. You did not do things that divided the church, which means you were very careful about expressing a love for others. You were very careful about letting other people know that their interests were even more important than your own when you're sitting around a table and there are 10 of you who have different ideas about what the church should do next. A unifying church holds things together. People who go home talk about how bad my sermons are. That's not very unifying. You should quit it. <laughs> if you have something to say about my bad sermon, make an appointment. Oh, God, here they come. Uh, get ready. Get ready. Bonnie, we're going to have some appointments next week. Because, but if you go out and you spread that, and you talk about the youth group in a negative way, it doesn't unify the youth group. It doesn't unify the church. It tears it down. And some people... Make that, they're so critical of everything that goes on in the church. They're so critical of other p people who did something that they weren't part of that committee. You know, it's just, it happens that way. We're humans. We're prone to that unless we remember that we are to follow the example of Christ. Unless we have begun the work of obtaining humility as a central core part of our being. Not thinking we're more important than we truly are. Certainly no more important than anyone else in the body of Christ. The third thing I just want to mention was, was the one I even liked the best of all. It had to do with the passage that we just read today. And what he said about that passage was this. I will not let my church be about me, my preferences, and my desires. And by that he meant that I would not come to a country club where I expected them to give me things for me. But rather I would come to a place to serve, to care for others, to pray for leaders, to learn, to teach, to give. To give of our lives and be a part of the church as we reach out to others. In other words, you came to empty yourself into a body of believers. So when I think about our church and when I think about what God is calling us to do, when I think of a vision for us, I think about a group of people who are loving, united, and humble who are ready to put the interests of others before their own. Now be clear as I close this sermon. You do some incredible things. You do some awesome things. This church is strong in so many ways. But we have to learn together in all humility and from each other how we can better live as a church together through small groups, through a humble spirit, through a servant attitude in such a way that every day of our lives becomes yet another opportunity to give an everyday witness for the church and for Jesus Christ. And we won't even have to use their name when we act that way. They will just know the people around you that you're different. And they will ask you about it. We have to learn how to, sure, take care of the people in our congregation, obviously. We know people are here and need to receive teaching and content about the gospel. But we have to be sure that we are equally, if not more so, taking what we have received and going out and pouring it out to the people in our community as well as the people around the world. 
Have we done that well locally? In love? Let me just say, not so much. And you say, preacher, how do you know that? Because the numbers have not changed the way they should have changed. It's not that you haven't done it at all. It's not that some of you haven't done it. It's just not that it has not been the main focus of our Jerusalem outreach. Go and spread the gospel to the whole world, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the other most parts of the earth. It starts where you live, in Jerusalem. We can't skip over the thousands upon thousands of people who live around us. They have to become our focus. When I think about what God is calling us to do, I believe that God is calling us to do that. You're not hearing me say that we're going to do with, away with all the things we do well. You're not hearing me say that. You're hearing me say we need to focus more on the things that we do that can reach out into our community. It'll take all of us as a church to turn around Ten years of one of those churches that's just been kind of flat. The good news is, when we do that in a focused way, Christ will add to our number daily. Please do not hear what I'm saying to you as a condemning word or a negative word. It's just my observation after one year. It's a chance I could be wrong. Can't imagine it, but it's possible. And some of you will probably write me an email and tell me where I'm wrong, and I cherish those emails. Because every email I get about those kind of things is more input into figuring out how we can turn this thing around. Because that's what we're going to do. That's what they're going to do at CCA. That's what they're going to do everywhere where the church is alive and well.